This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Washington, January 10, 1803. Dear Sir, I have but a moment to inform you that the fever into which the Western mind is thrown by the affair at New Orleans, stimulated by the mercantile and generally the federal interest, threatens to overbear our peace. In this situation, we are obliged to call on you for a temporary sacrifice of yourself to prevent this greatest of evils in the present prosperous tide of our affairs. I shall tomorrow nominate you to the Senate for an extraordinary mission to France, and the circumstances are such as to render it impossible to decline, because the whole public hope will be rested on you. I wish you to be either in Richmond or Albemarle till you receive another letter from me, which will be written two days hence if the Senate decide immediately, or, later, according to the time they will take to decide. In the meantime, pray, work night and day to arrange your affairs for a temporary absence, perhaps for a long one. Accept affectionate salutations. Thomas Jefferson. By January 1803, President Jefferson felt that the Louisiana situation had gotten to such a crisis point that he had to enlist the help of a long-standing ally who had retired private life in order to negotiate a peaceful settlement with the French government. Who was this ally, and how had the situation deteriorated so fast in a year's time? All your questions shall be answered, dear listener. But before that, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Ben Bernier of the Thugs and Miracles podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. On his podcast, Ben goes through the history of the monarchs of France, and since I started listening about a month ago, I've been hooked. As with Presidencies, Ben is detailed in his research and brings the available sources together to see what we know and don't know about the kings and queens of France, starting with Maravich, who he dubs, quote, the ghost who spawned a dynasty. Once you get done listening to this episode, be sure to check out Thugs and Miracles by going to the website, thugsandmiraclesalloneword.com, or by searching for Thugs and Miracles on your favorite podcast source. I'll also have a link on the source notes page for this episode. Before we venture forth, let's take a moment to look at the city of Washington in the District of Columbia. The year 1802 would mark a couple of major milestones for the growing city. Though sales of public lands in the district the year prior had not been as successful as the initial sale back in 1791, the city had 599 habitable houses as of New Year's Day 1802, and rentals were earning their owners a 20% return on their investment on average. New shops and boarding houses had opened, and in 1802, the Potomac Company finished their work on, quote, the locks and canal around the Great Falls above Georgetown. With this new anticipated financial boon, and in recognition of the fact that, as was proclaimed in the pages of the National Intelligencer, quote, no town in the Union has advanced so rapidly. The city of Washington was officially incorporated in May of that year with a two-year charter that gave the citizens the right to elect members to a city council. The mayor, however, would be chosen by the president, 
and Jefferson appointed to that post Robert Brent, who was, quote, a representative of the original landed proprietors of the area. Alexandria and Georgetown, though also within the district's borders, retained their own city governments. But, as noted by historian Constance McLaughlin Green, there was a, quote, fierce competitiveness among the three cities. In what may sound familiar to residents of the district in the present day, 2019 as of this recording, D.C. citizens began to complain about the fact that they had no representation in Congress. At that point, they couldn't even vote in the presidential election, and so petitions were sent to Congress for a resolution to the matter. A territorial government for the district was proposed, but objections to that came from Alexandria as they were concerned about being dominated by the part of the district that had originally been part of Maryland. Another proposal was put forward to retrocede the two segments of the district back to Maryland and Virginia, respectively, or possibly just Alexandria and Georgetown. But again, as will likely sound familiar to 21st century residents of the district, little came of the proposals. Though they could not elect their president or mayor, there was at least a little consolation for the residents that Washington was in fact a city and had an elected city council. Surely the other matters would be resolved soon, and D.C.'s status within the Union would be clarified in a couple of years, right? Right? The attention of those in Washington, and in particular in the government, was not just on local matters in 1802, as much was transpiring out in the world that could potentially impact the U.S. French First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte had begun to implement his new colonial policy, which included installing new administrators in key colonies, yet again imposing different laws on the colonies than those which govern the metropole of France and reintroducing slavery into the colonies. In smaller colonies like Guadeloupe, where slavery had been abolished in 1794, the new French policy was more overt. But in colonies like Martinique, which had been captured by the British and in which slavery had never been abolished, return to French possession just meant business as usual. Saint-Domingue, however, required a different approach. With General Leclerc and his expedition came Governor General Toussaint Louverture's two sons with a letter from Napoleon. The First Consul had assured the young men that Leclerc's force, quote, was meant only to strengthen the military forces there. And in his letter to Louverture, Bonaparte wrote that, though there were, quote, many good things in the new Constitution of Saint-Domingue, it did contain some provisions, quote, that are contrary to the dignity and sovereignty of the French people, of which Saint-Domingue is only a part. The message Napoleon had given to Leclerc, however, was quite different. Leclerc was instructed to implement a three-stage operation to take out Toussaint. First, areas of opposition were to be targeted. Toussaint's rival, André Rigaud, who had been exiled after Toussaint defeated him for control of Saint-Domingue, as discussed in episode 2.21, was also accompanying the Leclerc expedition back across the Atlantic and would be used to make contact with the, quote, enemies of Toussaint in places like Morlaix Saint-Nicolas. Leclerc would also work to rally support in the previously Spanish portion of the island, Santo Domingo, the modern-day Dominican Republic. Phase two involved approaching Toussaint and his primary supporters and convincing them to hand over power. If they did so willingly, they would be granted safe passage into exile and, quote, would retain their ranks in the French army. After that, phase three would go into immediate action. Leclerc was instructed to, quote, in all points of the colony, arrest all suspicious men who hold positions of no matter what color, and deport at the same instant 
all the black generals, whatever their habits, their patriotism, and the services they have rendered. Do not allow any blacks having held a rank above that of captain to remain on the island. With their leadership gone, the colony would easily be brought back into submission, or so Napoleon believed. Historian Laurent Dubois, in his History of the Haitian Revolution, noted that, quote, It is difficult to know whether Bonaparte intended to reestablish slavery in Saint-Domingue when he dispatched the Leclerc expedition. However, considering that his aim was to reestablish Saint-Domingue as a viable and profitable colony, something that even Louverture had not been able to figure out another way to achieve than the reestablishment of a pseudo-slavery system, it is quite plausible that such was his intent from the beginning. Timing was important for the expedition. As had been experienced by French troops, along with British and Spanish forces, during the military actions in the Caribbean in the 1790s, beginning in April, quote, the climate of the colonies became very dangerous for European troops who were not acclimated to it. If Leclerc could not secure Saint-Domingue by April, it may mean that Napoleon would have to accept the reality of an independent Saint-Domingue led by Toussaint. Events, however, would work out so that Leclerc's expedition was able to depart from France in December, and by late January 1802, the ships were off the eastern coast of Hispaniola. Soon after, the plan was put into place. Troops were sent to the major port towns, which would then work their way out into surrounding lands. Leclerc led the ships carrying troops to Lecat and arrived off the coast on February 3rd. Once there, he reached out to the commander-in-chief of the town, General Henri Christophe, explaining that his purpose was solely, quote, to defeat any rebels in the colony, and had a message from First Consul Napoleon read aloud to the citizens of the city by the mayor of Le Cap, reiterating that point and warning that any who opposed General Leclerc would be considered a, quote-unquote, traitor to France and would face the, quote, rage of the Republic. Yeah, no, this really didn't convince anyone, and French troops were fired upon as they were disembarking near the city. Christophe, Realizing he would not be able to hold the town, ordered Le Cap to be burned as his troops evacuated. Thus, for the second time in a decade, the largest city in Saint-Domingue was destroyed by fire. Now, it's outside of the scope of this podcast to go into all the details of this period in the Haitian Revolution, especially as it's already been covered so well by Mike Duncan in his Revolutions podcast. But the important thing for us to know is that Louverture's initial response was to fight. He quickly found, however, that his support in facing down the French troops was not quite as strong as he would have liked. The commander at Port-au-Prince surrendered without a fight to the French, as did forces in the South. Despite the guerrilla-style warfare employed by Louverture's forces, which Leclerc and his expedition were not used to, French troops continued to advance as winter gave way to spring. Little by little, Toussaint's forces, though obtaining some victories, were whittled down and he faced more defections in his ranks. But none was arguably a larger blow than that of Henri Christophe in mid-April. Despite the fact that Christophe had been the one who initiated the conflict against Leclerc, within a couple of months, he had become convinced that it was a lost cause. Dubois speculates in his History of the Haitian Revolution that this may have been due to unofficial news reaching Saint-Domingue about the peace concluded between the British and the French. Peace would only increase the likelihood of more troops coming to reinforce Leclerc, and everyone, including Toussaint himself, knew that Toussaint had no reinforcements coming. Shortly after Christophe's defection, Louverture arranged talks with Leclerc, and, 
on May 6, 1802, quote, surrounded by several hundred members of his honor guard, signed an agreement according to which he was to keep his rank in the French army and retire to his plantation at Ennoy, while his soldiers would preserve their ranks and be incorporated into the French army. Toussaint's rule in Saint-Domingue was over. If you'll indulge me for a moment, dear listener, while we're not finished with our discussion of Saint-Domingue, in fact, far from it, I'd like to take this opportunity to carry forward to the end of Toussaint Louverture's life as his time as an active influencer of events is at an end, and we don't have long to go to reach his end. Leclerc, in allowing Toussaint to retire to his plantation, had not carried out a key portion of Napoleon's orders, but it quickly became apparent that Toussaint had to go. The surrender of Louverture's troops had not ended resistance in Saint-Domingue, and as the temperatures climbed in the spring and early summer, so too did the tensions. Leclerc, feeling that Toussaint was directing rebels through secret contacts, decided in early June that the time had come to fully implement Phase 2 of Napoleon's plan. On June 6th, Toussaint was lured to a meeting by some French officers and was arrested. One of the officers reportedly quipped to Louverture, quote, You are now nothing in Saint-Domingue. Give me your sword. Louverture, his wife, his sons, and a niece were all taken into custody and transported across the Atlantic to France. Toussaint would end up in prison at Fort de Joux in the Jura Mountains of France, where he would die in his cell of apoplexy and pneumonia on April 8, 1803, as he boarded the ship at Gonaïve that would lead him to his imprisonment and death. He was reported to have said, quote, in overthrowing me, you have cut down in Saint-Domingue only the trunk of the tree of the liberty of the blacks. It will grow back from the roots because they are deep and numerous. This promise is perhaps Toussaint Louverture's greatest gift to the history of Haiti and the world. But overall, he leaves a complex legacy. We followed the rise and fall of this leader from the end of the Washington presidency. And while he can be pointed to as a proponent of a multicultural society and a leader in the cause of emancipation, it cannot be overlooked that he willingly returned those who had recently been enslaved back into a captive state and adopted authoritarian policies to carry out his plans. That being said, Toussaint is a fascinating individual who typically does not get nearly enough attention in the study of world history, and I encourage everyone to learn more about him either through Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast or through the various resources listed on the source notes page for this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even before Toussaint's downfall, however, the Jefferson administration had already begun laying the groundwork for negotiations over Louisiana. As we discussed last episode, Jefferson had given assurances to French Charge d'Affaires Louis-André Pichot in July 1801 that the U.S. would not interfere in any operations that the French might undertake to secure control of Saint-Domingue, thereby allowing the Leclerc expedition to proceed unhindered. As noted by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, Having convinced Pichon of his excellent dispositions toward the French, he, Jefferson, was in position to speak candidly about the effect the taking of Louisiana would have on the relations between the two countries. 
By the beginning of 1802, he was telling the Chargé that the result would be, at the First European War, a rupture between the United States and France, and an alliance between the former and Great Britain. Also, he was saying that the French could remain in Louisiana only so long as the Americans would permit. As we'll see, Jefferson made a point of coupling his threats with a reminder that he was very fond of France and that the cordial sentiment was shared. Indeed, in February 1802, he learned that he had been elected as a member of the prestigious Institut National de France, a unique honor granted to him. In his lifetime, Jefferson would be the only American by birth and residence elected to the Institute. However, the new film French colonial ambitions posed a major threat to the United States, and for an administration that had just spent the good portion of a year cutting the size of its military forces, the two-pronged approach of tough talk and an expressed willingness to negotiate was really the only viable approach. Soon, reports were heading back across the Atlantic, not just from Pichon, but also from the British chargé d'affaires, Edward Thornton, that government officials as well as citizens in general in the U.S. were talking about the threat of a French-controlled Louisiana and that such a situation would likely drive the U.S. into a stronger alliance with Britain. This was only a start, however. For, as noted by Malone, quote, At this stage, Pichon was doubtful of the political success of the administration, while Thornton believed that its domestic policies would weaken the country thus making the friendship of the United States less important to the British and its enmity less formidable. Secretary of State Madison would help to buttress the president's efforts by painting a picture of the facts of the situation in the Mississippi Valley for Pichon to then convey to his government. American citizens were increasingly migrating further west, strengthening U.S. claims and authority in the region. Meanwhile, if the French engaged in further conflict in Europe, as they were expected to do, it, quote, would leave French possessions in the New World at the mercy of restive slaves, expansive pioneers, American food producers, and the British Navy. By July, the arguments had convinced Pichon enough that he wrote to his government urging that they, quote, be resigned to the Americans' future power to conciliate them and acquire the merit useful in other respects, of acceding to that which the force of events will give them in spite of us. Even this would not be enough, however, if Jefferson's chosen representative in Paris wasn't on the same page. Thus, he sat down and wrote to U.S. Minister to France, Robert Livingston. The letter that the president wrote on April 18, 1802, was a private letter that would be carried to Livingston by a private citizen, Pierre-Samuel Dupont de Nemours. Even at this early stage in his presidency, Jefferson had established a pattern that would later be remarked upon by scholars and students of history. Madison would communicate with diplomats abroad, quote, with traditional diplomatic caution and restraint, while Jefferson would send private letters in which he, quote, spoke more freely, more experimentally, and at times more violently. As this was a private letter, it was not part of the administration's official correspondence, and thus did not have to be communicated to Congress should they request official instructions sent to Livingston. With this freedom and cloak of confidentiality, Jefferson was able to share the same message he had given to Pichon and Thornton. While he felt an affinity towards France and wanted to find a peaceful solution, French control of Louisiana would not be tolerated by his government. And if it went through, they would be left with no choice but to form an alliance with Great Britain. When Jefferson sent this letter to Dupont for him to bring to Livingston in Paris, he invited Dupont to read it. If the name Dupont sounds familiar to you, 
It's likely because you're familiar with the company that this Dupont son would found and which carries on to this day. To understand why Jefferson chose Pierre-Samuel Dupont to carry this letter, we need to understand a little about Dupont's history. Pierre-Samuel Dupont de Nemours was born in Paris in 1739 and early on in his life began to research and write about economics. He eventually became an economic advisor to the Director General of the Royal Treasury and in 1786 was appointed as Counselor of the State by French King Louis XVI. Despite his close ties to the French government, Dupont supported the early phase of the French Revolution and transitioned into the French National Assembly where he aligned with the moderate Girondists. Once the Jacobins under Robespierre took power, Dupont came under suspicion and was arrested in June 1794. He managed to escape the threat of execution and, with his release at the end of the Reign of Terror, was chosen to join the Council of Ancients in the Directory Government in 1795. With the coup of 18 Fructidor, however, Dupont found himself under arrest again. Though this arrest only lasted a night, the uncertainties of the French Revolution prompted Pierre and his family to consider immigration, and they stepped foot on American soil on January 3, 1800. As with many who flee their country out of fear, it seems that Pierre and his wife Francoise longed for home and, with the stability offered under Napoleon's regime, had decided to return to France. With Dupont's connection to officials high up in the consulate government, Jefferson saw an opportunity to enlist possibly an even more valuable ally than his own diplomatic representative. He soon learned, however, that Dupont saw things in a different light. Dupont wrote back to Jefferson rather aghast at Jefferson's threats in his letter to Livingston. While he agreed with Jefferson that free navigation of the Mississippi River had to be secured, he didn't understand why French possession of Louisiana meant that the U.S. should align itself with the hated British. Surely the U.S. could work out an agreement with France, the U.S.'s allies since the Revolutionary War. Dupont suggested that Jefferson firmly, quote, renounce all desire with regard to the west side of the Mississippi River and instead focus his efforts on negotiating for the acquisition of New Orleans and the Floridas. Jefferson quickly wrote back to Dupont, asserting that his intent had been misunderstood. As he explained, quote, it is as if I foresaw a storm tomorrow and advised my friend not to embark on the ocean today. My foreseeing it does not make me the cause of it, nor can my admonition be a threat the storm not being produced by my will. It is, in truth, our friendship for France which renders us so uneasy at seeing her take a position which must bring us into collision. He also wrote another short note for Livingston as the final part of his correspondence before departing the president's house for Monticello and exclaimed that, quote, I've got further into this matter than I meant when I began my letter of April 18th not having deliberately intended to volunteer so far into the field of the Secretary of State, who will go on with the subject hereafter as heretofore. I do have to admit, Jefferson playing the role of both good cop and bad cop is a rather interesting setup, but it was the tightrope that he had to walk in what he saw as the best interest of the nation. With his first congressional session wrapping up that spring, Jefferson departed on May 5th for Monticello. For someone who longed for an idea of home and family, his separation from his daughters was difficult, as evidenced by his frequent request that Martha and Maria join him in Washington. Beyond just the fact that they both had families and households of their own to maintain, 
Maria admitted in a letter in late January 1802 that, though, quote, it would make me most happy to go to Washington to see you, but I've been so little accustomed to be in as much company as I should be in there to receive the civilities and attentions which, as your daughter, I should meet with and return, that I am sensible it is best for me to remain where I am. Though she had traveled to England and France as a young girl, for the most part, Maria's life was spent on plantations in Virginia. She was not accustomed to cities and to life in the spotlight away from home. Jefferson, however, argued in his reply to her that, quote, I observe your reluctance at the idea of that visit, but for your own happiness must advise you to get the better of it. I think I discover in you a willingness to withdraw from society more than is prudent. I am convinced our own happiness requires that we should continue to mix with the world and to keep pace with it as it goes, and that every person who retires from free communication with it is severely punished afterwards by the state of mind into which they get, and which can only be prevented by feeding our sociable principles. Part of the reason for his trip in May was the hope that he would be bringing his daughter Martha and her family back to Washington with him, with all of them then returning to Monticello in August. Martha's husband, Thomas Mann Randolph, had been considering buying lands in the Southwest for cotton cultivation. Randolph's initial thought was in the Mississippi Territory, but Jefferson had worked to dissuade him, urging him to instead consider lands in Georgia. And the president even arranged for congressmen from Georgia to stop in Albemarle to talk with Randolph about prospects there while on their way home from the congressional session. However, as Randolph's plans for a scouting trip down to Georgia while Martha and the kids were up in Washington ultimately fell through, and a bout of measles started in Albemarle, something which Martha saw as a boon as she wanted the children to be exposed to measles to make them immune to it, Jefferson returned back to the president's house for the late spring and early summer without them. Jefferson and his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, had settled into life at the president's house by this point. Jefferson spent a good deal of his day while there in his office, which was in the space of what is now the state dining room of the White House. As described by historian William Seale, quote, Tall and generously proportioned, the office had fireplaces east and west and was flooded with daylight through tall south and west windows. The president had an unobstructed view down the Potomac to Alexandria and a secondary view to the west of the War Department building. Because the room was private, known really only to his cabinet and his secretary, it aroused curiosity in its time. For the duration of his presidency, the room was the center of his life. In the light from its tall windows, he wrote his letters and studied his maps. On freezing winter days, he labored between two brimming log fires, abjuring in this private place the costly coal he had introduced elsewhere in the house. In the summertime, with the windows open, he might have been in a treehouse. So lofty and green were his views, and so remote was this corner room from other human activity. For the management of the house, Jefferson relied upon his steward, Etienne Lemaire. Little was known about him, but as he would manage the president's house from the time Lemaire was brought on in 1801 through the end of Jefferson's tenure of office, it seems that the president was pleased with his management. From the oval room in the basement that served as his bedroom as well as his office, Lemaire was responsible for the care of everything in the house, from the larger furnishings down to the silver, tablecloths, and napkins. It would be Lemaire who would have to work out issues of fuel for the fireplaces, a particular headache since there was little firewood to be had in the Washington, D.C. area. 
The situation was alleviated a bit when Jefferson had hob grates for coal installed in some of the fireplaces in the spring of 1802, as coal from Virginia was abundant. Le Maire would manage the procurement and inspection of food and was responsible for ensuring the safe storage and keeping of Jefferson's renowned collection of wine. Le Maire would also manage two white servants, the French chef Julien and the Irish coachman Joseph Doherty as well as the enslaved individuals that Jefferson brought from Monticello to work at the president's house. Seal, in his History of the White House, comments that the enslaved individuals were, quote, troublesome, probably because they did not like taking orders from the Frenchmen. But a more likely explanation is that, like the people who Washington enslaved and brought with him to Philadelphia, these individuals did not appreciate being separated from their families and forced to labor against their will in an unfamiliar place for someone who was a stranger to them. Further, unlike those enslaved by Washington, there was no six-month rotation system for these individuals, as slavery was legal in the district along with the surrounding states. Jefferson could keep them there for as long as he liked, in a place that even those who were free felt was far removed and remote. Personally speaking, I'd likely be troublesome as well with those circumstances taken into account. But leaving it as that is assuming that Lemaire, who again, we know little about, did not employ any verbal, emotional, or physical abuse against them. That, dear listeners, is a big assumption and not one I'm willing to make. Jefferson returned to Monticello in August 1802 as planned for his longer stay. Whereas the president's house was more sparsely populated, Monticello was filled with Jefferson's family and friends. We have a description of the environs from one of his visitors during this time, Miss Thornton, the wife of the designer of the U.S. Capitol. The Thorntons accompanied Secretary of State Madison and his wife Dolly to Monticello to visit Jefferson, and Miss Thornton described that, except for her mother, who continued on to the house with assistance, the rest of their party, which included Dolly's sister, had disembarked from their vehicles at the foot of the mountain and proceeded up, quote, three-quarters of a mile through the woods on foot, while the lightning flashed, to arrive at Jefferson's home, quote, shortly before the breaking of a thunderstorm. As it had been for a while, the house was under construction. Quote, going through a large unfinished room, lighted by a dull lantern and with loose planks on the floor, they entered a large room with a small bow room separated from it by an arch. The company were seated at tea, part of them in the unlighted larger room, and Mrs. Thornton described the experience as, quote, irregular and unpleasant. When it came time to retire for the evening, Mrs. Thornton described in her diary how, quote, we had to mount a small ladder of a staircase about two feet wide and very steep, with the beds fixed up in recesses in the walls, the windows square and small, turning on pivots. Everything has a whimsical and droll appearance. In addition to the six in the Madison Thornton party, at Monticello at the time was Jefferson, both of his daughters and their families, including their husbands, Jefferson's brother Randolph, Thomas Mann Randolph's sister Virginia, Jefferson's former secretary William Short, and four others. For an incomplete house, it was packed to the gills. As we've seen, that was how Jefferson preferred his household. But there was also one other detail worth noting that Miss Thornton observed. Like with the president's house, Jefferson had his suite, his bedroom and library, always locked so that, quote, he could be assured of freedom to devote himself to important matters. His wing of the house had to be regarded as a sanctuary, 
and so apparently it always was. Presumably, it was finished by this time, so far as carpentry was concerned. One of Jefferson's greatest desires since assuming residence in the president's house was within grasp upon this trip, as it had been agreed that his family, which had gathered around him at Monticello, would follow him back up to Washington for the winter. He would, however, need to go back earlier, with Jefferson leaving the comfort of Monticello in the early fall, arriving back at the president's house on October 4th. Upon his return to Washington, he was faced with a new foreign crisis as another North African nation had declared war on the United States. The naval blockade of Tripoli had initially gone well, with American diplomats in Europe offering European powers without treaties with Tripoli protection for their Mediterranean commerce. However, as Tripolitan Admiral Murad Reyes got a better understanding of the limitations of the American ships, his forces began to threaten U.S. merchant ships and break through the blockade with more impunity. Dale's squadron was swapped out for a second squadron composed of five frigates under the command of Captain Richard Morris in spring 1802. Morris's squadron, quote, had greater firepower than the first, a total of 180 guns compared to 126, and higher cost, $900,000 compared to $555,000. Shortly after beginning their mission in the Mediterranean, however, the forces levied against Morris's squadron would increase. Following the refusal of a request made by Morocco for permission to pass through the American blockade to convey a shipment of wheat to Tripoli, Moroccan Sultan Moulay Soleiman declared war against the U.S. and issued orders for Moroccan cruisers to engage the American frigates in battle. As noted in episode 1.30, the U.S. had enjoyed a peaceful relationship with Morocco for decades, with the two having concluded a treaty back in 1787. So this was a serious shift in the United States' standing in the Mediterranean. Tensions further heightened with new threats from Algiers and Tunis. And to make matters worse, as European powers began concluding new treaties with Tripoli and sending them tribute payments, the Tripolitan Navy was able to acquire even more ships and firepower to take on the U.S. Naval Squadron. Captain Morris wrote back to Washington, urgently requesting assistance, and Jefferson discussed the situation with his cabinet in October. They ultimately decided to open up negotiations with Morocco, and the U.S. Consul to Morocco, James Richard Simpson, was instructed to begin peace negotiations. Though he was expressly forbidden to agree to the payment of an annual tribute, Simpson was authorized to negotiate a one-time payment of up to $20,000 in order to secure a peace treaty. As the Jefferson administration dealt with tensions to the east, they had little way of knowing that an even larger international problem was developing to the west. You remember how I've been saying that the western part of the U.S. in the early 19th century depended on the Mississippi River and, in particular, on having New Orleans open to American shipping? On October 16, 1802, Spanish intendant of the Port of New Orleans, Morales, closed the right of deposit, or the right of storing goods in preparation for export, at the port to American merchants. As news of this new proclamation spread north and east through the U.S., the thought settled into numerous minds in the nation that the situation as it stood was untenable. The settlers and territories of the West couldn't let their fortunes be dictated by the whims of a foreign power. If the West was to remain a part of the Union and thrive, it was clear what had to happen. In the days and months to follow, the resolve strengthened that, be it by diplomacy or war, 
the U.S. had to have New Orleans. We'll explore the path forward in our next episode, which I'd like to call Making Plans for Monroe. Before we part ways, though, I'd like to say thanks again to Ben of the Thugs and Miracles podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. I'd also like to give a special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music. Special thanks also to my husband Alex for helping to edit this episode while we were on the road and traveling for the holidays. To find out more about Thugs and Miracles, the Itinerant Band, or this podcast, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. There you can find past episodes as well as information on the various places that you can listen to the podcast, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and more. And you can even learn how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help to support the podcast, including but not limited to leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. I recently had a review left on iTunes by Vicky of the Ransack History Podcast which, by the way, is a great podcast that I just recently discovered and have enjoyed getting caught up on. The review is titled, Listen, Review, and Repeat, and goes as follows. Quote, I had no idea that the American presidents were so scandalous. This is an incredibly researched and well-delivered podcast. The host, Jerry, delivers an engaging and entertaining narrative on every episode. I've learned more about our presidents on this podcast than I ever did in school. Great show. Thanks so much to Vicky for her kind words and the show of support. Besides just giving me reassurance and good vibes, leaving a rating and review helps the podcast to receive more of a spotlight on Apple Podcasts and helps others who are searching for a new podcast to check out information to learn why this one might be the podcast for them. It only takes a minute, so please consider lending your support. If you have any questions, there are numerous ways to reach me. I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media. Look for me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. I cannot thank all of you enough for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.